It's time to discover your spiritual identity with your host, Mike Shree. There are hundreds of names and titles given to God's people that powerfully reveal who you are, why you exist, and what your purpose is in this world. Each one pulls back the veil of a different aspect of who you are in Christ. Once you learn these names and titles and apply them to your life, you will rise up boldly to be all that God has called you to be. Are you ready? Here's Mike Shree. God declared in Zechariah 9.13 that he would make the sons of Zion like the sword of a mighty man. Some of the names and titles that God has given his people are very obscure, hidden away in his word, and this is one example of that because you won't find this anywhere else, that God would make the sons of Zion like the sword of a mighty man. Now, the mighty man, of course, is the Lord himself who will wield the sword, and you and I become the weapon in his hands. This is both a corporate title given to the entire body of Christ, but it's also an individual inheritance. You are called to be like the sword of a mighty man. God wants you to be the weapon that he wills against the enemy, the prince of darkness, who controls this world. There's a lot of mystery hidden in this verse, and we're going to dig it all out. First, the revelation of what it is to be the sons of Zion. What does that mean? The word Zion really has eight levels of meaning. Number one, it meant the southeast ridge of Jerusalem where David erected his tabernacle to house the Ark of the Covenant and his throne was there. Number two, it also included Mount Moriah just to the north. And then it was used to mean the entire city of Jerusalem. Later on, it was used to name the people of God who identified with Jerusalem as their capital city they were referred to as Zion, just like the city itself. Then you shift into the New Testament, and we inherit that title because we're grafted into Israel by virtue of being born again. And the New Covenant Church, the born-again sons and daughters of God, are Zion. They are the children of Zion. They are the sons of Zion. And now Zion relates to a spiritual meaning. It becomes the high and the holy place that we ascend to when we worship God. When we come together in a worship gathering, the Bible said we are come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. Now, we don't actually walk through that city, but in a spiritual sense, we connect with that higher realm. The Bible said God invites us to that realm. He said he dwells in the high and holy place with him who is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. So he lifts us up to this spiritual realm called Zion, where he revives us. Ultimately, the word Zion will relate to New Jerusalem, the city of God that will be the capital city of a new creation. And it will relate to those who inhabit that city forever and ever. So the sons of Zion, that name spans the old and new covenant and then goes on out into eternity. And God said he would make the sons of Zion like the sword of a mighty man. 
what does that really relate to if you connect it with other scriptures in the Bible? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. This is talking about the whole armor of God. I'm only going to pull out two verses where Paul said, Above all, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation, that's your defense, and the sword of the spirit, that's your offensive weapon, which is the word of God. So the word of God is represented as a sword. A sword is called the sword of the spirit because it has to be wielded by the Holy Spirit or it's powerless. If a person isn't born again and does not have the spirit of God dwelling in him, then the word of God loses its level of authority and power like it has when a person is born of the Spirit, and the Spirit of God within that person infuses the Word when that person speaks the Word, then it's a weapon. It's a weapon. And see, over in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, and we'll get back to this in just a minute, it says, the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So not only is the word of God represented as a sword, it's represented as a two-edged sword. Now, what do the two edges represent? I believe a lot of things are contained in that symbol because this sword will either cut you off from God, or it will cut you free from evil. It will cut you off, or it will cut you free. And the two edges of the sword represent, I believe, the Old Testament and the New Testament, law and grace, works and faith, two opposites in the Word of God, like commandments and promises, curses and blessings, all of those are relevant parts of the entirety of God's Word. And when you absorb that revelation into your life, when you absorb that insight into your soul, then not only do you have a sword to fight your enemies with, but you're about to become a sword when you become one with the Word of God. And that's what the original scripture is all about where God said he would make the sons of Zion like the sword of a mighty man. Now, the word Zion, incidentally, means fortress. So to be a son of Zion means that you're one of those sons of God who are a part of God's fortress. We are a fortress of faith in a world full of unbelief, a fortress of holiness in a world full of unrighteousness. We are a fortress of joy in a world full of depression a fortress of peace in a world full of anxiety. We are Zion. We are God's fortress globally on every continent. There's born again sons and daughters of God, sons of Zion, sons of the fortress that are in a battle over mankind. There's a raging war over the human race right now. And you've got a weapon that you need to use. It doesn't need to be kept in its sheath. It needs to be unsheathed and wielded against the enemy. That's how you fight your battles. That's how Jesus fought against Satan. When he confronted him in the wilderness, three times he was tempted by the enemy, 
And three times Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written. And every time it was as if he was lunging toward the enemy with the sword of the word. It pierced him. It was something that he finally had to flee from. And that's the way you fight your enemies. What are your enemies anyway? Well, of course, the devil and all of his demonic underlings are enemies of your soul. And as soon as you got saved, you jumped out on the battlefield. Whether you like it or not, you're in a warfare. So you might as well toughen up and go into the battle with courage and with strength and with stamina and with stick to and uh, forget about being cowardly in the midst of this battle. But you also have other enemies. Sin is an enemy to you. The lower nature in your own body is an enemy to you. So you've got an external war and an internal war. The Bible clearly says that even though we delight in God, we delight in the laws of God after the inward man, we see another law in our members, and that's the law of sin, which wars against the law of God in our minds. And so you've got this enemy, this lower nature that can be subdued with the word of God. Internal war, external war. Then the world around us wants to contaminate us, wants to infiltrate the church and change the church into its image. Well, the word of God spoken in love, we speak the truth in love, can dismantle the strategies of the enemy. So once again, let me say this sword will either cut people off or cut people free. And I don't say that in a violent way because our passion is to help people, to deliver people, to set them free. And we've got the means of doing that. And no weapon formed against us shall prosper, Isaiah 54, 17, I believe it is, says. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. The Bible says the enemy, the devil, sends fiery darts our direction. Well, what kind of competition is it between a sword and a fiery dart? Who's going to win that battle, right? Now, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 because I told you that we would return to this scripture. The word of God is living. It's alive. It's powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing, the King James says, to the dividing asunder, but the New King James says, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What does that mean? It pierces to the division of soul and spirit. Because the soul part of you is the higher nature. It's the born-again part infused with the Spirit of God, the new creation, the hidden man of the heart that was created in holiness and true righteousness. That spirit man is supposed to be the ruling part of you because it's the part in the image of God. And the soul is the realm of the mind, the will, and the emotions. Human mentality, human emotional uh, workings inside of you. And so you've got a spirit man that is infused with God's personality, but you've got this soulish part of you that still is struggling with the lower nature. And God wants to filter his image from your spirit down into your soul until you are an overcomer 
of that lower nature. See, the spirit is, in the Greek, it's pneuma. And the word for spirituality in the Greek is pneumatikos. And so you want to be spiritual. You want to be a spirit-led person, not a soul-governed person. It's interesting to see that the word soul is suke in the Greek. But the word for sensual, and the Bible talks about those who are sensual and the wisdom that is from below, the wisdom that is from the enemy is earthly and sensual and devilish. Well, that word sensual is sukekos, and it comes from suke. Suke means soul, and sukekos means soul-driven or soul-controlled or sensual. It means your natural man controls you instead of your spirit man. Well, the sword of the Word of God enables you and empowers you to discern, to differentiate between the drivings and the drawings of the spirit man and the drivings and the drawings of the soulish part of you. Because when you first get saved, sometimes it's confusing. Your emotions can flare up and one day you're on top of the world and the next day the world's on top of you and your soul is churning with all kinds of negative emotions. Well, your spirit man, though, is saturated with faith. It's governed by confidence in God. And so the Word of God allows you to differentiate, to cut between soulish attitudes and spiritual attitudes. And there's a lot more that can be said about that, but I think that's sufficient. And what about this idea, though, that the sons of Zion would be made like the sword of a mighty man? Let's progress to that. And in order to understand that, I believe we've got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. The first time in the Bible you find a sword mentioned, and very strangely, it had not yet been created yet. No war had ever been fought. No soldier had ever wielded a sword. No one even knew what a sword was at that time until it appeared in visionary form, right? So God invented the sword before man did, and it was his way of letting Adam and Eve know there's a warfare out ahead of you but I'm going to guard the way back to the tree of life. When he thrust them out of the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, verse 24 says, he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I don't believe that the flaming sword was there, nor the cherubim, just to keep Adam and Eve out. Certainly, they could not return until the appointed time at the end of this age when heaven will come down to earth again and the redeemed sons and daughters of Adam will occupy that paradise to come. But it was God's way of saying that there is a way back. There's a way to return. And he symbolized it. God is a very poetical God. He, he speaks in symbols and signs and parables and symbolic stories. That's the way the mind of God works. And so in the very beginning, when he put a flaming sword, he made sure it turned every way, north, south, east, and west. It was God's way of saying something would be going out to the north, south, east, and west that would guide 
people back to this path that he was guarding that would lead to the tree of life. And the tree of life, of course, is the means to immortality. If you eat of the tree of life, you live forever, right? And there's much that could be said about that. So what is the flaming sword? The sword we already learned is the word of God. But what about the flame? Jesus, John the Baptist said, would baptize us with the Holy Spirit and fire. However, I've heard it said that in the original Greek, the word and is not there. It's just he will baptize you with Holy Spirit fire because fire is symbolic of the Spirit of God. Our God is a consuming fire. And that's a wonderful thing. It's not a bad thing if you're yielded to it. It's the fire of transformation. It's the fire of impartation. It's the fire that's burning the dross out of you of the lower nature. It's burning the chaff of unbelief and religion out of you and burning into you the very nature of the Almighty God, baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. Praise God. So the flaming sword is the word and the spirit mingled together as one. A word weapon that would lead us back to what Adam and Eve lost in the beginning. And isn't that what God is relating to when he said he would make the sons of Zion like the sword of a mighty man? He doesn't want us to just believe in the word of God. He wants us to become, as it were, reflections of the word of God or manifestations of the very nature of the word of God. Jesus, of course, in utter and absolute perfection was the word made flesh. He was the sum total of it all. When he walked down the road in Galilee and the wind blew through his air, it was blowing through the pages of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He was the Word made flesh. But you and I are called to be living epistles, small portions of the total living Word. And just like Jesus is the totality of the Word, you and I are called to be individual expressions of the word in this world. That's a heavy calling. That's an intense revelation. Absolutely. So the sword that is on fire is leading people back to paradise. And if you become a flaming sword, then God will use you to lead people back to paradise. And you're in a warfare over the souls of men. You're fighting to bring conviction on people, to bring deliverance to people, to set them free from captivity, to get them out of the devil's clutches, and to bring them into this paradise intimacy of a relationship where you can walk with God right here, right now in this world. One last thing I want to say about the sword. Let's go to the book of Revelation. It's used in a very powerful way in a very powerful image that relates to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Revelation chapter 1, where John sees the resurrected Christ, he said, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded about the chest with a golden girdle, his head and hair 
were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire. And his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, his voice like the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and listen, out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. Two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in his strength. So in the beginning of the book of Revelation, he is depicted that way. That's the word coming out of his mouth. The sharp two-edged sword, commandments and promises, curses and blessings coming out of his mouth to sever the connection between us and the lower sensual nature and the world around us. Praise God for that. Then in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, God warns the church at Pergamos that because they held the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel and to eat things sacrificed to idols, that he was against them for that. And he said, repent or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And that was the individuals in the church at Pergamos that professed to be Christians, but were very deeply involved in religious evil. And really, that's happening in the world around us. People that profess to be Christians or hold to a Christian worldview do things that symbolically and religiously look very much the opposite. Like just recently, on uh, July 28th, at the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham, England. The, uh, the, initia- uh, the initial ceremony was a red, a big bull with red glowing eyes, huge bull about 10 meters high that came forth into the arena area and the people eventually were bowing to it as if bowing to Baal. Remember the false idol that the children of Israel worshiped when they came out of Egypt was a bullock. So that was absolutely a like Baal worship going on. It was utterly it was utterly disturbing to me that a nation that was once the primary means of sending out missionaries to the whole world, England, now has a symbol like that in their Commonwealth Games where 72 nations were participating. Think of that. It's really a symbol of the enemy trying to show that he's going to wield his power to corrupt the nations. But I believe that the biggest threat to the globalists, to the new world order, to those who want to introduce uh, a whole new society, the World Economic Forum and its ideas leading us toward communism and a communistic takeover of the entire world, The biggest threat to that ever happening is the people who are the sons of Zion. And I'm not talking about physical warfare. I'm talking about spiritual warfare. And we have the word weapon to fight with that will execute the will of God in the earth and bring forth a revival that no globalist organization can control. It will be an outbreak of revival that will bring in the final harvest And the sons of Zion in the last days more than ever before truly will be like the sword of a mighty man. The mighty man is coming again in Revelation chapter 19. 
John said, I saw heaven open, behold, a white horse. He who sat on him was called faithful and true. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He has a name written that no man knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. The armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And listen now. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. I believe when the Lord descends with a shout, it will be an intelligible statement, not just a guttural sound. When he descends from heaven with a shout, I believe he'll say the same thing he said in the Garden of Gethsemane when the soldiers came and he said, Whom seek you? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. And the soldiers fell under the power of the declaration of the I am saying who he was or revealing who he was in their presence. I have a feeling when he comes down in his ultimate absolute glory, as he descends, he may well say, I am that I am, and that will bring the nations under his dominion. And that will be the sword of his mouth. Thank you for listening to Discover Your Spiritual Identity with Mike Shreve, a podcast designed to cause a spiritual awakening in your life. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can go deeper into this amazing revelation of the names God has given his people by getting your copy of Mike Shreve's book titled, Who Am I? Dynamic Declarations of Who You Are in Christ. We also invite you to visit our website, shreveministries.org, and sign up to be part of our global internet family, a group of on-fire believers who are bold to proclaim, I am who God says I am, I have what God says I have, and I will be what God says I will be.